You're listening to TIP. Hi there. I'm really excited about today's episode of the podcast. My guests are two of the people I admire most in the world. One of them is Daniel Goleman, who's the famous author of a classic book titled Emotional Intelligence. Daniel has a PhD in psychology from Harvard and then spent many years as a science writer for the New York Times. Among other things, he's an expert on the science of meditation and how it can help us to handle our emotions, improve our focus, boost our resilience, and think more rationally. He was an extremely popular guest on this podcast a few months ago, talking about how emotional intelligence can even help us to become more successful investors. On today's episode, Dan is joined by a legendary Tibetan Buddhist meditation master named Sukni Rinpoche. They've co-authored an excellent new book about the science and practice of meditation. It's titled, Why We Meditate. When we recorded this conversation a few months back, I'd just returned from a one-week silent meditation retreat with Rinpoche, which is a Tibetan word meaning precious one that's used as a title to honor the most revered teachers. I'm not a very accomplished meditator by any means, and I have to admit I did a terrible job of staying silent during the retreat, which may not surprise you given how much I like to talk. But Rinpoche is a really wonderful teacher, and he's had a powerful impact on my life in the last few years. His insights on how to deal with our emotions have been particularly helpful to me, and I must say he's played a major part in helping me to become both calmer and, I would say, happier. Sogni Rinpoche often talks about the challenging emotional patterns that drive our behavior and make our lives more difficult. For example, We might suffer from an intense fear of criticism or a fear of abandonment because of something painful that happened when we were young. Or maybe we have a deep-seated anxiety that we're somehow inadequate or incapable or unlovable because we felt unappreciated and unloved while we were kids. Sogni Rinpoche has a wonderful phrase to describe these difficult emotional patterns that have been imprinted on us by our formative experiences. He calls them our beautiful monsters. What I love about his approach to dealing with our beautiful monsters is that it's very kind and gentle. Instead of suppressing these challenging emotions or judging them or trying to escape from them, he suggests that we simply say hi to them, smile at them, and allow ourselves to feel them more fully. His term for this strategy is handshake practice. Because we're greeting these difficult emotions warmly, shaking them by the hand, instead of blocking them or pushing them away. Rinpoche believes that our beautiful monsters open up and gradually heal when we treat them kindly and don't resist them. I have a post-it on the wall of my study at home with a lovely quote from him that says, One day, all of our beautiful monsters will trust us and be our friends. I'm no psychologist or psychiatrist. But for me personally, this practice of meeting difficult emotions with awareness and warmth and kindness has just been incredibly helpful. So I really wanted to share it with you too. In this conversation, we'll talk in detail about how to handshake our beautiful monsters. We'll also discuss some other very practical techniques that can help you to become happier, calmer, and more focused. For example, We'll talk about a belly breathing technique that can restore your sense of well-being when you're feeling a lot of restless, speedy, unsettled energy in your mind and body. Rinpoche will also share his instructions for two different types of simple meditation. You'll also hear his wonderfully irreverent mantra, which is, who cares, so what? 
Whatever happens, happens. Whatever doesn't happen, doesn't happen. I try to remind myself of this mantra once in a while when I need to lighten up and take myself a bit less seriously. In any case, I'm really thrilled to be able to bring you this conversation with Sogni Rinpoche and Daniel Goleman, who happened to be staying with each other in America for a few days before Rinpoche flew back to his home in Nepal. Our conversation may not make you richer in the strictly financial sense of the word, but I have high hopes that it's going to make you wiser and happier. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to the Richer, Wiser, Happier podcast, where your host, William Green, interviews the world's greatest investors and explores how to win in markets and life. Hi, folks. It's an honor to be here today with some very special guests. I've been joined here by Sokni Rinpoche, who's one of the greatest Buddhist teachers and meditation masters of our time. And we're also joined by his close friend and my friend Daniel Goleman, who's been a guest on the podcast before. And Dan, as you know, is the author of Emotional Intelligence, which is an iconic book that sold more than 5 million copies. We're also lucky to be joined by Adam Kane, who often helps Rinpoche by translating from Tibetan into English. Rinpoche and Dan have just written a new book with help from Adam. And in the epilogue, they write, Our vision with this book is to help create healthy people in every sense, grounded, warm-hearted, clear-minded people who have the energy and natural inclination to help others. A simple slogan captures this vision, grounded body, open heart, clear mind. So I'm sure all of us would love to feel better physically, emotionally, and mentally, because it'll no doubt help us in every area of our lives. So that's really what we're going to discuss today. Rinpoche, it's wonderful to see you. Uh, today is actually my birthday, so speaking with you is my birthday present. So thank you for joining us. Happy birthday. <laughs> thank you very much. I wanted to start by asking you about your father, Tulku Urjian Rinpoche, because he was obviously a very extraordinary man. I've, I've read a couple of his books, and I wanted to ask you, who was he, what was he like, and why did he have this very profound influence on, on your life? He has a lineage of meditation uh, lineage uh, that he transmitted from his father, his uncle, and all his life. Of course, he studied Buddhism uh, in the intellectual way, but mainly I think he focused on meditation and uh, transform himself. And uh, the love, the compassion is part of his nature. So whenever I connect with him, seeing him, of course, he's my father, but uh, more like he's my teacher. So I think I got a lot of, uh, whether I'm aware or not, so I got a lot of influence, blessings from that lineage, from that practice. And Dan, you also knew Tulku Urjian Rinpoche very well. You wrote an introduction to a memoir that he wrote and described him in the introduction as among Tibetan Buddhism's greatest masters of the 20th century. I know that you spent many weeks with him, and I know this is, I guess he passed away in about 1996, so this is a long time ago, but I wonder if you could give us a sense of, A, what made him special, and also to give us a, a, more of a sense of um, what Sogni Rinpoche just said about the importance of their family, because I, I think Sogni is being a little bit modest about how eminent this lineage of great meditation teachers really is. So I, I think let's start with the family, because it's extraordinary. Tulku Urjian's grandfather, 
was a one amazing meditative visionary named Chokyur Lingpa, who founded actually an entire lineage of practice. His uh, daughter, who was the mom of Tokurugin, I think. I think Chokyur Lingpa is the great grandfather. Oh, great grandfather. Oh, okay. At any rate, there's a grandmother who was also an amazing uh, meditation master. Most everyone in the family was. It was just part of growing up in that family, I think. And so the teachings that uh, for other people would, would might take a lifetime to get, I think maybe you got in childhood. I got a childhood, uh, I think when I was in 14 years old, I was studying in India, so I come back. So one morning he was giving mind teaching, which is quite high teaching. You know, you you like looking or finding your real true nature of this mind. Not the, you know, mind has many aspects like thinking and like a thoughts, a lot of disturbs emotions. Yes, that is part of your mind. But there's another mind, like a mirror, clear and open with a space. So introduce me the innermost space. And I think I got it somehow. So slow, of course, take time. So I think that space is very precious to me because I can perceive everything without pushing away, without blocking, but I can sort of rest, be with that inner openness. And through that openness, innate nature, like uh, compassion, love, understanding just come because a part of the uh, your own true nature but without introduced the openness and i think there's so many things are blocked and we cling on and we don't know what to do with that so we sort of suck into it so that transmission i received when i was 14 years old of course so many ups and downs in our life. But somehow that was, I call, my inner refuge, one of the inner refuge. So uh, what uh, Rinpoche is describing uh, really captures the essence of what it was like to be with Tokurujin. He was utterly peaceful, utterly present, utterly loving, and very empty behind it. He, it, he didn't want anything. He was just there for you. Empty in the sense of free. Exactly. Not like hollow empty. It's very rich empty. When you look at him, we know he's there, he can talk to us, everything very beautifully. But if you look more into it, there's an openness, freedom. Sometimes it's very hard to relate, but we love to relate, but hard to relate because I cannot find some thick stuff that his personality is blocked by something. It's just transparent, beautifully open, but ready to respond to you. But the holy responding is through love, compassion, really like normal human being. I call sometimes more normal than normal being. Yeah, it's funny. I, I was going to read a paragraph to you from this book that Dan wrote the introduction to, which is your father's memoir. And it's an amazing one-paragraph summary of his life by your father that's the most unarrogant, like, like it's the least prideful description of a life. He oh. says, I was born no, in central we're, we're, Tibet. He says, I just uh, want to say, yeah. he didn't want a memoir. Huh. He wanted to talk about amazing beings he had met. He, he really never talked about himself. Yeah, and it really like, is about your ancestors. It's, not a, it's about his teachers and what he learned. So here's his summary of his entire life, which takes up four lines. 
He says, I was born in central Tibet, taken to Kham, then went back and forth between the two several times. I fled the communists to Sikkim and finally moved to Nepal, where I am now living as an old man. That's my life in a nutshell. I haven't accomplished any great deeds. Mostly, it's just one sad event after another. It's very humble. Yeah, it's extraordinarily humble, right? Given, you know, the fact that he presumably had an impact on many thousands of lives. And and in fact, you know, William, he traveled around the world, taught everywhere. People came from all over the world to study with him, too. Uh, But he doesn't mention that. And he was your teacher, Dan, right? Uh, Among other teachers. He taught you and your wife, Tara. Tara and I came because uh, Sogya Rinpoche said, you really should come and meet my father. Uh, We met him 30 years ago, the first day he came to America, straight from JFK, actually. Mm. Yeah. And uh, we, we just felt very close. There was a natural yeah, feeling. Yes. And um, one of the wonderful things that uh, Rinpoche has done for Tara and I is to connect us with amazing teachers, starting with his father. We were there to study with Nyosho Ken Rinpoche, another great master who you had come to study with right. also. Right. And then uh, later, uh, Sogi Rinpoche took us to uh, China, and we met with one of his amazing teachers, Adi Rinpoche. So I would say those are the three remarkable teachers in this tradition that we were fortunate enough to meet, all mm-hmm. thanks to you. And of course, we, Tara and I studied with it's an amazing family. Rinpoche has three brothers who are also tokus or recognized incarnate lamas. Mingyur Rinpoche, who's remarkable. Chokinima Rinpoche, an amazing teacher. Choling Rinpoche, he's passed away, but he was amazing. So we were fortunate to study with the whole family, but I think each of them benefited from being the child of Tokurgen in the same way. And just to clarify for people who don't understand the, the terminology, Rinpoche means precious one, right? Which is an honorific an, for an important teacher. Tulku, how would you define Tulku? Well, you need to um, jump into the uh, kind of Tibetan belief system a little and, and assume there's such a thing as reincarnation. And if you make that assumption, people who are highly evolved, who have done a lot of inner work, can come back to help other people. That's what a Tulku is. So it's a reincarnated lama, a great teacher who's reincarnated, basically, to come back another time and help us. Yeah. And who's often identified in childhood and raised in a particular way so that they can fulfill that mission. And some say, oh, you know, maybe they made a mistake. I mean, people who are called tokus sometimes are very humble about it. And uh, people, a toku is venerated in the Tibetan context. Yes. So Rinpoche, when you were, I think, about eight years old, you were in this little village in Nepal, where your family was living in the mountains in a remote village in Nepal. And you overheard, I think, your mother and your grandfather saying, a letter has arrived. And I think it was news from His Holiness the 16th Kamapa, who was head of one of the four principal orders of Tibetan Buddhism, saying that you were a reincarnated Lama and that you needed to hop into action and come study. Can you tell us what happened there? Because... uh, it's a kind of extraordinary story. I mean, it must have turned your life upside down. One evening, I heard the conversation between my mother, my grandmother, my grandfather about this news. So I have some sense because I have 
two older brothers were also Turgo. I didn't know I'm a Turgo or not at that time. So I got the news. So I was a little bit upset, you know, I have to leave the village. At the same time, a little bit exciting that my other two brothers are also doing that. But then, you know, a little bit confused, so don't know what to do. And then some point, we went to Kathmandu. And then you know, my father was staying in Kathmandu at that time. So then he talked to us, yeah, Kamapa. He has a Kamapa letter that I was, you know, this and this, this and that. But then, you know, it's because I was child, young, so I forgot for a while. So then age of 12, the real thing happened. Then say, now you must go to India to study the under the Kamdru Rinpoche in Tashiyong, Himachal Pradesh. Then I got a little bit upset. Like, uh, I don't know anything about Kamdru Rinpoche. I don't know anything about India. I never saw a train. I know they, they say you have to go by train. The train is look like 40, 50 houses joined together and moving on the wheel. Doesn't get in my head. So I was thinking, I'm thinking how all of that. Then one day I went, you know, someone, my father asked someone to help. So I arrived at Tashijong, India. So I eventually I met Kamdurumbuche. So I stayed there and studied about 12 years. When I was in Tashijong, really up, up and down, my emotion went up, down, then, you know, so many things happened because I call Turku imprint. I was developing. Turku imprints is everyone expect you as your previous life. So I was confused, which one is mine? The second Sony is mine, or this one is mine? So I got a little confused at the beginning, a lot of, lot of uh, confusion. This is because you were a reincarnation of two different Sokni Rinpoches, right? There was the first one who'd been born in the 19th century, who was a great uh, figure, and then a second one? I don't worry about second and first. I'm worried about the me and the, the my before one. So which is me? The boy, young boy coming from village, is the me? Or the great lama was born in Tibet? It was me. That is the me. So there's two me going on. Someone said, oh, Sonia Rinpoche, not me, because of they met previous Sonia Rinpoche, they respect me. So this little, you know, it's, it's called Turku schemas, which I learned from Tara about schemas, his wife, Danny Goldman's wife. So later, then I went back to Nepal. Then I got more teaching from my father, Kenzi Rinpoche, and then later, Adi Rinpoche, Rinpoche. So I sorted out that. So you I must think. have had a great sense of pressure, enormous sense of pressure. Well, you have to imagine, the village Rinpoche grew up in was a six-day walk to the next town. It was really isolated. So you have to, it was like growing up in a medieval age. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. And then all of a sudden, he's in this more modern situation with a lot of pressure. A study, you have to do well because you are the Sogni. You know, so name of the Sogni is coming from the, my predecessors. So he's a great master. He has so many students. He did very well. You should behave this way. You should sit still. You cannot look this and that. Like the old man's character is putting on the young child. And this young child don't know how to hold that. A lot of emotional problem. But the good news is I met a great teachers. So I can call. I'm right now 75, 80% transformed. But the sum imprint I now call a beautiful monsters 
are still with me. But I'm okay with that now. We'll talk a lot more about this idea of beautiful monsters, which is a, it's, can you explain the term now though, just so that people understand, but we'll come back in great detail to this idea of beautiful monsters. What are they? Because I was gone through that stuff, that training, that expectation. Uh, I lost myself between the previous Sonia Rinpoche and the my person. So there's a lot of uh, things there. But then later, because of practice, because of meditation, because of awareness, kindness to myself, my two nature, which is introduced by Tugu Jirumbache. So I found at the end, wow, those difficult things are great. But it is kind of monster, but there is a beauty in it. So these beautiful monsters really are, to use the word you used before, schema from Dan's wife, Tara, they're, they're like these childhood patterns that we, like wounded love or the lack of respect that we got or a sense that we were unworthy or fear that we're not good enough. The, these psychological wounds from childhood, or, is that right? Yeah, the healthy one, I will not call is beautiful monster. The little bit goes astray, like uh, it blocks our normal feeling and perceptions. And we identify that is me and mine. So there's a way you can look into it. I call the practice of handshake. And then to differentiate, oh, this is a healthy fear. And this is a distorted fear built in you. Now it looks like a monster, but actually it's not a monster. You can learn so many things from that fear and you will understand yourself much better and you'll understand others' feeling, others' emotion. Wow, there's so many things you can learn. It becomes a learning ground. Then the beauty starts. So how did you deal with this in your own case? If, if we take this as an example of how to deal with these difficult patterns that we've adopted from early life, what did you do to deal with your own fear that you weren't good enough or that you weren't worthy of this lineage or that you weren't good enough to be your father's success or any? I, I mean, it just must have been so much pressure. How did you greet and handshake your own fears and overcome them? I smile. I feel that blockages. I feel that feeling. And I say hi to it. I stay with them or with it and keep smiling. Feel that beautiful monster. Stay with it or stay nearby. And not indulging, not suppressing not running away from it. I'm there. I'm there with you. But doing nothing, no giving any commentary, no beautiful lectures, just listen and be there. I call fully being. Just fully be with that. And then time to time smile. Hey, this is not me. It's my leftover imprint activate it, okay, and to kind to the beautiful monster. I know it's not me. This, this conviction is important from your cognitive mind. Yes, it is a leftover star. It is not me. It can open up. When it opens up, there's a lot of beautiful things we can learn. We can be transformed. Wow. But it is painful right now. So I have a mantra called, it is real, but not true. The feeling of pain is real, but the, it is carrying wrong message. 
So eventually, you should talk to each other. The cognitive mind, the feeling world, need to talk to each other. But at the first, they need to come together. No conversation, just smiling a little bit and listen. And one day, the beautiful monster starts to open up. I'd like to know more. Why are you so calm? You're always telling me something, do this, don't do this, this is good, this is bad, I like, I don't like. But this time you're quite relaxed, you are there for me, but you're not scolding me, you're not suppressing me. What is that? What's happening? Then the beginning of opening from the feeling world starts. Sorry, it's too long. No, it's perfect. And it's such an important subject. And this subject, actually, Rinpoche, has, it's had an, an immense impact on my own life over the cu- last couple of years. I've been studying this idea of handshake practice a lot. And as you know, I came on a one-week retreat with you very recently in, in New York State. And I asked you a question about this because I was saying one of the things that was shocking to me was as I was trying to be silent, which it turns out I'm almost incapable of. This will surprise <laughs> you. A lot of emotions came up from my teenage years where I felt like this sadness and a kind of, uh, yeah, just like a sort of disappointment and a memory of that loneliness. And, and I asked you how to deal with it. And you said to me, well, you know, stay with it, be with it, feel the emotions in your body without trying to judge them or change them, kind of resting with it. But you also said to me, smile at it. That was incredibly helpful to me because I feel like I take all of this stuff much too seriously. Yes. You, you seem more and lighthearted then, and more accepting when these painful things come up. You're happy to sit with them in a gentler way. Really? Yes. I just, I feel, as you say, and I just stay with that and not hoping that it will go away, but it goes away. So whenever you have hope, oh, I'm doing handshake practice. Oh, through the handshake method, handshake practice method, my beautiful monster will transform. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is a great method. I think you have to handshake that feeling, that thought. This is your original beautiful monster. Then the handshake comes. Wow, handshake is so nice, wonderful technique, wonderful method. I'm going to apply to my beautiful monster. And this is become monster again. That thought, that feeling, want to transform, transform, transform by this method. So again, drop the first one. Just say hello to the second thought, second feeling, and relax with that. Just relax. And then there's a space. I think in the West, a lot of us... If you relax here, relax here, then always like this. So you have to relax together. Yeah, always clashing if we're... Handshake man and relax. But at the beginning, your mind hand can be relaxed, but... You know, beautiful monster might bang you a little bit. Then you go back. So Dan describes it in the book, I think, as radical non-resistance. So in a sense, Dan, can you talk about this? Because you also know a great deal about the science of this. I mean, you, you have a PhD in psychology from Harvard, and you're also married to someone who's an expert both in, in mindfulness uh, yeah. and in uh, a lot of the, these ideas of how to deal with patterns from our childhood. Can you add your own perspective on what's going on here by not suppressing this stuff when it comes up, but actually greeting it, welcoming it, handshaking it warmly, and not necessarily applying an antidote to it? You know, from a Western scientific perspective, I was quite surprised when I looked at the literature 
to see, for example, there's very good research at Stanford University on how people can just simply be with and accept without judging, without trying to fix it, as Rinpoche was saying, without avoiding it, just feeling the feelings and accepting the feelings turns out to be very powerful. Uh, there's good brain research on this now that shows that if you can have this kind of accepting attitude, it dissipates, as Rinpoche was saying. Uh, and this was a lab study, had nothing to do with your approach, no. but it's absolutely convergent data. Absolutely. Yes. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, do you ever wonder how investors like Peter Thiel have Roth IRAs worth billions? Many do more than just save a portion of their income, invest it in the stock market, and cross their fingers and hope it grows enough to retire on. The secret is they use something called a self-directed IRA, which has all the tax advantages we love, but with a twist. Instead of being stuck with stocks, bonds, and cookie cutter options, a self-directed IRA with New Direction Trust Company allows you to invest your retirement savings in what you know and what you're passionate about. From real estate to startups to gold and silver, there are nearly unlimited investment options. You could even finance and set the terms of a loan. You name it, NDTCO will help you fund it. We're not saying you'll be the next Peter Thiel, but we're not not saying that either. Because his secrets are now your secrets. Check out New Direction Trust Company and self-directed IRAs today at NDTCO.com and unlock the potential of your retirement savings. That's NDTCO.com. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. All right, back to the show. It's interesting. There's also, there's a book that I separately 
started to read multiple times a couple of years ago by um, a former psychiatrist called David Hawkins, who I think became kind of an enlightened mystic. Uh, he, he passed away a few years ago. And he talked about a letting go technique that's very similar, a mechanism, where he said, the thing that keeps the energy behind these emotions, these difficult thought patterns or emotions going, is actually the resistance to them. And so he said, when you stop resisting and you just let it be and you just abide with it, whether you're meditating or just in regular life, because everything is impermanent, as we know from Buddhist philosophy, things change and the intensity kind of dissipates. Does that resonate? Is that a fair description of what's going on? Oh, yeah. I think that um, many different traditions have come to the same insight, different avenues. So I didn't know David Hawkins, but it, it makes total sense, yeah. both from a scientific point of view, being with, without resisting, without attaching, just accepting. That's, this, that's what the science is telling us. But it's also what your tradition is telling us. It's right. what he's saying, too. I think it's all the same thing. It's very profound to me because I think actually life-changing because we grew up in the West, we weren't really taught how to deal with our emotions, right? And when negative stuff came up, like if you felt inadequate or you felt embarrassed or ashamed or not good enough, you couldn't really deal with it. So you would deal with it maybe by judging somebody else or by hating yourself or by working harder or by beating yourself up. And so there were all of these techniques that I think actually worked in my life. They made me more successful in many ways, but they don't make you happy. And so I feel like um, we weren't taught a good technology, if it makes sense. We were talking today about developing a program for schools, for kids, to help them with this kind of inner growth so that they won't go down the usual path, which is what you're describing. I mean, our society rewards us for doing well not for being kind or for being calm or be clear. Uh, we have to find that later in life, uh, you know, as, as you're discovering. But if we could help kids get that from the beginning, I think that would be a great gift. There's an extraordinary line, Rinpoche, from your Fully Being course, which I, I've listened to over the last couple of years. And I'll include this in the show notes along with references to your, your books, links to your books. There's an extraordinary line where you say, one day, all of our beautiful monsters will trust us and be our friends. And you also say, rest in the kind home of non-judging. And I thought that was yeah. just really interesting, this idea of non-judging, not judging ourselves. Can right. you talk about that attitude of non-judgment, non-self-judgment? Yes. If we do the handshake properly, then that is non-judging because there's no way to judge. It is with almost like a oneness with the beautiful monster. So there's no space there. Like, so it opened by itself. So you just be there, not like a separate, at the, at the beginning, maybe you stay nearby, the mind, the, the ego fixation, stop staying nearby, and smile, listen. Slowly, slowly, you just stay together. Once you stay together, the non-judging is natural. And then, of course, you can apply sometime. You can, oh, this is, you know, trust the capable or innate nature of the beautiful monster. As you say, impermanent, it changes. It's not your inherent, you know, thing. It just came about, and then it, there's a right cause and condition, and it will open up. So mainly you trust the beautiful monster, 
and the beautiful monster eventually trust. And then, that's it. The openness happened. So the, then, there's a sense that you're saying to the beautiful monster, you, you can stay here as long as you want. I, I don't need to get rid of my fear, my sense of inadequacy, my sadness, my jealousy, my anger. It's like it's part of being human. It's, I can see you there and I'm okay hanging out with you. Is that an okay summary of that attitude? Some kind of attitude like that, yeah. But it changed. The secret is it changed. But you cannot expect too much at the beginning. Wow, if I practice handshake, everything will be okay. But it is. It will be. This beauty will come out of that. You have a whole chapter on this subject of beautiful monsters in the book, which I, I really encourage people to read. And it describes the four steps for handshake practice, where you're meeting the beautiful monster, this upsetting emotion or pattern, and you're being with it, feeling it, listening to it, and waiting, staying with it. And then, I guess, communicating with it and using the mantra that Rinpoche said, which is, it's, it's real, but not true. This feeling is real, the pain may be real, but the narrative's not true. So I really encourage people to look at this. It's very, very helpful. But you do mention in the book that sometimes the, the emotions that we're sitting with are actually kind of too intense and we have to back off, particularly if right. it's something that's been traumatic, really traumatic. Can you talk a bit about this idea of what to do when the emotions that come up are too intense when you're oh. doing handshake practice? How do you deal with it? Because obviously you don't want to re-traumatize yourself if something really catastrophic has happened in your life. How do you deal with it if it's too intense? Of course. So you have to come back to some of your well-being areas. Maybe on the breath first, or just rest in the sensation of the body. Maybe not to go close to the feeling, the inner feeling world. Not too close to the beautiful monster. Or maybe you have some place in your being. There's a safe, relaxed, open place. And go there and nurture that. And keep nurturing that, and then time to time say hi to the trauma, and the smile, and then come back to your breath. Your, I'm sure even the traumatized people have something in their being. There's some well-being and like a secure feeling. So go there, and I, that I call is base camp. So it's like you're going back to the base camp and then you go back to climb Mount Everest and deal with, deal with the difficult stuff. Yes. And you can do a little bit of walking meditation. Even I like this, just feel when Rub you do. Rubbing your hands together for people who are listening. Very relaxing. Breathe in. Enjoy a bit like this. For, for people who are just listening, Rinpoche is rubbing his arms gently with his hands, so he's kind of soothing himself, I would say. Then just awareness land there. You land with that feeling and relax. And then maybe through that door, you can connect with a beautiful monster. And then time to time, if you can, change the cognitive belief also. Cognitively, like you're, what you're thinking about, in other words. Thinking start to change, be kind to thinking. Oh, I know thinking is thing, will think this way, but it's just aware of that, relax with that. Then slowly you will feel, I call tea back. Tea up there, there's a back there. So that tea back could be a trauma or trauma plus something else. So you can handshake maybe with a 
uh, retinue of trauma, not the main traumatic feeling. So one open up, second open up, and less reinforce, less reaction. Then, although we have intense trauma, but there's always openness around it. So we are trying to find that openness. And that openness will embrace or hold the traumatic experience. And so it's again an attitude of gentleness and and yeah. warmth rather than fighting. No, 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 no fighting at all. A fight, sometimes I call it, you know, trauma might beat you a little bit. It's just take it. Okay. Okay. And then too much, then you go away a little bit. And then come back again. Stay nearby. And stay nearby, maybe good place. Maybe good memory, maybe calm place. Just find some relaxation in the body. Yeah. And uh, interesting that this is parallels a therapeutic approach to trauma, because in when you work with a therapist with trauma, you're doing the same sort of establishing a trusting alliance. Uh, you feel safe. And uh, sometimes in this approach, they talk about dosing yourself. Which is really, I think, a different way of thinking about yeah, being near or approaching. You take it only as much as you can and not too much. Because your question was really, what do you do when it's too much? And always take little risk, go in. Every time, little bit coming in, little bit coming closer, little bit coming closer. But gently. Of course, very so, gentle, very kind, very kind. You said something striking to me during that retreat where, where you said, you know, your beautiful monsters can't hurt you now. They're, you know, you don't need to be afraid of them. And it was kind of reassuring to be like, oh, okay, I, you know, this, this stuff feels intense, all these memories of childhood and youth. And, but yeah, it was, I think so much of the time we build this very strong defense against anything that's painful. Maybe particularly for men, if you're like an ambitious man, you're like, I've got to be strong and tough and pretend that I'm not vulnerable. And so, in a way, it was a real relief to hear, well, actually, you can be a little gentler with it, a little more amused by it all. So, thank you. You're allowed to feel, you're allowed to, you know, cry. You cry, but not judging. It's just an offering. And you can laugh, too. You can laugh. I'm going to try not to cry during our interview. I'm going to wait till afterwards. So Rinpoche, I wanted to turn to another challenging subject that I know you've thought about a great deal, which is the whole issue of stress and what you call speediness. And obviously, you, you've traveled around the world a great deal for more than 30 years now, teaching in the US and the UK and Denmark and Taiwan and Hong Kong and many other places. And I'm wondering first what you've observed in countries like the US about this kind of this challenge of stress and busyness and, and what you call speediness. Can you talk about culturally what's going on here and also how it's manifesting in our bodies? And then we can talk a bit about what to do about it. I think the culture really incurs to everything past from childhood, doesn't give any time to wonder or like always need to do something in the fast mode. Otherwise, you might not accomplish. So that constant message from environment goes into our, I call our system, our subtle body, the gross body, 
and the cognitive mind, but in between there's a feeling world, I call the subtle body. And that, you know, I went into the system. And then, then you move that again, and I'm going with that. When you are young, it's quite okay. But the one day, that becomes out of control, out of balance. Your mind wants to be a little relaxed. Your physical also wants to be relaxed. But this movement in the energy world, I want to, I want to go, I want to do this, I want to move. So I call this uh, unbalanced or speed limit. So it's always like I call a car is in the like neutral, neutral, and the full accelerator. A car is going nowhere, just speeding. Like uh, if you need to go to airport after four days, but your speediness is went to airport many times before you really arrive there, and everything about a rush. Oh, back. I need to pack. I'm going, talking to the friend. All this, like, lumi, I call that, the, the, the airy, busy. That actually is the cause of stress. I found it. If you're aware of that, and then you can keep the right balance with some technique or meditation practice, then the healthy speed is moving in your energetic body. So let, let's talk about how to do this in some detail, Rinpoche, because the book offers some very specific ideas for how to bring down this energy when it's... One of them, though, there's a breath control method you, you talk about, belly breathing. Can you just give a basic description of how you can use belly breathing where you, I guess you either lie on the floor or you sit on a chair... And what do you do? You're, you're focused around your navel? How do you do this? When you are in the speedy mode, so everything goes up into your neck, head, the speediness. It's like this. So by the help of breath and the mindful awareness, slowly breathe in, bring down, and you do a belly breathing, deep breathing, end of the breathing in, stop a little bit. And so your belly is like a balloon, right? And it's expanding out as you breathe in. And then you hold the breath? Yes. For like eight seconds, something like that? No, no, no. Yeah. Eight second, five second, four second. Whatever is comfortable. comfortable. Yeah. A little bit, hold it. And then let it go and breathe in. And one day that becomes very natural. You will know when you are really in that speedy, Everything went going up. And William, it turns out that the scientific studies of these methods show it works. It really shifts you from the sympathetic nervous system mode, which is the stressed speediness, to a parasympathetic, which is rest and recovery. And it happens physiologically. It's a very powerful method, it turns out. And so in Tibet, that was discovered spontaneously from India. From India. And, uh, you know, you find the same methods in yoga, for example. And now the scientific studies are saying, you know what? This really works. And you're not breathing too much up here. Above. Yeah, not, not so much in the chest and more down in the belly. More like belly is doing like this, expanding when you breathe in and then hold a little bit there. And then one day you do less and less, less. And then you know, okay, my speedy. Energy is down there. I'm more free, 
my neck is free, my eye is more cool, and my perception is more like a kind kind of life. And then you hold that while you're working, while you're in the doing your business, and you know you can do that. And the, in the scientific part of your new book, Dan explains that this has an, a whole array of positive benefits. I think one of them is that you're triggered less by troubling events, but one, one of them is that you recover better, I think, when you're in this kind of relaxed state, that you're more resilient. Is that right, Dan? Yeah, the technical definition, in, for example, in laboratory science of resilience is how quickly you recover from the peak of upset to getting back to calm and clear. And it turns out the more you do these methods, uh, the quicker your recovery. So that's one of the strong effects we found when you looked at all of the literature on meditation and on breathing and so on, uh, is that the, there's a dose response. The more you do it, the less triggered you are, the less intensely you're triggered, and the more quickly you recover when you are. So let's talk more specifically about meditation, because obviously the, we've talked about a couple of the techniques that you describe in the book, this breathing technique and the handshake practice, but the book is called Why We Meditate, and it's clearly a central part of what we're discussing here. There are a couple of different techniques that you discuss in the book for how to settle the mind and cool us down through meditation when we're feeling scattered and unfocused and confused. Can you, Rinpoche, give us some very simple instructions for how to settle the mind by meditating first on an object of support, whether it's the, I guess the most common one is the breath. Can you explain how we would do that? Yeah, I think before that, I will do a dropping meditation, like a neat gesture, attitude in the mind, and breath, three things come together, you drop. Like attitude, okay, Whatever happens, happen. Whatever doesn't happen, happen. Doesn't matter. I'm going to let it go. And at the same time, your hand just drop like that and the breath out. It's like this. <sighs> so for people who are, who are listening to this rather than watching, it's essentially that you're kind of, you're dropping your hands onto your lap and you're exhaling. So it's like, <sighs> and, and so you're dropping the attitude in your mind and you're, you're, so you're bringing yourself more out of your thinking mind, Rinpoche, and more into your body? Is that what's happening? Well, thinking mind, body, everything. Like, you know, thinking mind is up there, thinking all different kind of things, you know, busy, cannot see the actually relaxation. So you have to say a little bit to know to the thinking mind and the drop thinking mind and aware of the body. And just stay there for a while. And then you have still the knowing mind, you have still the awareness is still there, clarity is still there, but not chatting. Chatting drop. You you haven't looked inside my mind, obviously, Rinpoche. When I'm in this state, I mean, what do we do here when your your mind is racing and you're like, okay, I want to relax, and so you say, I'm going to do this dropping. I'm going to start calming down. So you you sit there on your cushion or on your floor or on your sofa or on your chair, and you kind of. You drop your hands down to your lap and you, you exhale and you kind of let go and you try to feel your body and then your mind starts racing and you start to say, but wait, I've got this deadline and I can't believe my wife just said this and really she wants me to pick up the kid? Like what do you do then when your mind starts racing? Then you see it is really necessary that I need to pick up my children. Then don't worry, forget about meditation. Go and pick up 
but it, it might not be that. It might be some other stuff. Then, you know, I think there's some powerful mantras that Rinpoche has that you can use with the dropping, which help you with the, the thought racing. One of them is, who cares? Whatever happens, happens. If you can tell yourself that as you drop, that means you can let go of whatever preoccupation is capturing your mind. Uh, I'm yeah, not yeah. saying forever drop. I'm saying at that moment. So it breaks the cycle for you. I think kind of like the handshake practice where there's a very gentle approach. When you do the dropping approach, which also is described very well in this book and, and in the Fully Being program online, as Dan was saying, there's this mantra, so what? Who cares? It's no big deal. And I feel like for someone like me who takes everything too seriously, including myself, it's mm -hmm. um, and all my responsibilities, just trying to learn which aren't really such major responsibilities anyway, but I act like the world is going to end oh, if I don't do yeah. them. Sorry, don't go all the way about linking your life. There's a responsible, of course, you have to take responsibility. But the, you have to have some space moment that you, we cannot hold cup forever, no? Well, what happened? Your hand is attached with a cup. But can you <laughs> hug your wife? Cannot. So drop the cup for a while. Now, hand is free and stay with that freedom for a while. Then you can, your French open, then you can hug Danny. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I'm, I'm holding all the books, everything that carry me. I'm carrying that all the time. That I cannot really do well. I cannot make friend with him. I have to drop or put down. But put down, sometimes I cannot, is the mind. Because it's not solid things holding. But solid things hold, hold then you can put it down. But this is like a psychological subtle body stuff is hanging there. So you little bit like courage way, courageously drop. It's okay. Doesn't matter. It whatever happened, happened. Whatever doesn't happen, happen. So okay, whatever it doesn't matter. Okay, now it matters. Now my healthy care comes. My healthy responsible come. I'm a little bit open and rested. So what shall we do? What can I do for you to solve the conflict problems? So the wisdom come out of openness. Wisdom not come out this like a speediness. Speediness. Yeah, and clenching. I feel like I'm always clenching. You know, it's like I, I'm fighting the world and fighting my responsibilities. It's always like, you know, and so I think what I like about your approach, Rinpoche, is it gives me permission to be a little bit softer and more humorous about it. Yeah, be child a little bit, child heart for a while. Then come out. You need to rest. Proper rest. If you're holding on that, you're not resting. When you don't rest properly, you're not experiencing openness. When there's no openness, the inner beauty not coming. So, okay, let's say we've, we've done the dropping. One thing is, okay, you can drop, drop, but something you cannot drop. Even you want to drop. That is the little fine one. Strong imprint. You cannot drop like that. So there you need a handshake. Hey, where are you? I'm coming. That if you want to drop, cannot drop that. But many things can drop. Many two things cannot drop. So there you need to come handshake. So if you're okay. dropping and you have a sense that you're still a little overwhelmed and anxious and you're like, I'm never going to be good enough. I can never handle all of this. You look at yeah. that and you handshake that. Handshake that. That's it. Yeah. Yes, and be relaxed with that. Oh, I cannot drop. I cannot drop. 
Hello. A way of that thought and feeling and handshake that. So just being, being with it gently and being like, oh, hi, okay, yeah, I see that old emotion coming up. Well, welcome, welcome to the party. So it's a little bit, so acknowledging the stuff that comes up that's just uh, your familiar yeah. patterns. But not only from your cognitive mind. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know it's coming. You're welcome. Not like that. You feel it. There's some honesty from the feeling world is connecting. I'm amazed at how much tension I feel in my forehead. You know, I like look at it and I'm like, really? It's like I'm trying to crunch all of these problems by frowning enough. You know, yeah. it's interesting when you see how you're dealing with this stuff in your body when you become more aware of it. So I'm trying to stop fighting the whole time, fighting myself. No. Welcome. And smile and relax. You have to sit in my study reminding me of this, Rinpoche. If you could dial in on FaceTime, that would be very helpful. So to go back to the, the next step then, so we, we've done the dropping. So we're dropping our hands onto our laps. We're relaxing. We're saying, who cares? So what? Whatever happens, happens. Whatever doesn't happen, doesn't happen. It's all fine. And then we want to start meditating for a few minutes uh, uh, just to, get a, to focus a little on, on some object of support. Can you discuss this technique a little, which is a very fundamental technique that runs through all meditation traditions, I think? It's called karma-biting meditation. Uh, you choose one gentle object. In this case, can be your own breath. So just aware of your breath. You know, breathing out, just aware. Breathing in, just just aware. So keep doing that. Yeah, doing that. That's, yeah, this is called shamatha with object. Yeah, or with support, right? The support of your breath, something to focus on. Yes. And shamatha is a term for like resting or calm abiding. What, what does it mean? Adam. Adam, what's oh. the meaning of shamatha? Shamatha, yeah, it means sort of a, abiding in calmness, abiding in uh, peacefulness. So the Tibetan word, shi uh, ne, remaining in a, in a calm state. All right, that's beautiful. You've earned your keep. Thank you. <laughs> that's great. And then there's another technique, Rinpoche, which is shamatha without an object, right? Where you're, you're abiding, but in a kind of open way without focusing on the breath, which sounds a bit like meditating without a safety net. How do we do that and why do we want to do that? Yeah, I think we have to connect with the clear clarity of the mind, the vividness, the special, unique quality of the mind is the clarity. Knowing clarity is not like when you are asleep or you lost consciousness or just awake, daytime, just awake and find that wakefulness openness and aware that clarity and then again relax with that just find that openness clarity aware of that and relax again and again and then thought comes sometimes thoughts emotion it comes but it will go by itself sometimes the thoughts emotion will disturb your clarity then you might need a little bit of handshake with that emotion, that beautiful monster, and end of handshake, the intensity in the beautiful monster start to open up, then naturally come back into that clarity, 
that openness. So it's like that again and again. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. Up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. And they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right. Back to the show. So people are always complaining that their minds go crazy when they're meditating and too many thoughts come up. But it seems to me what you're saying is that this type of meditation 
it's okay if thoughts come up. You just don't want to indulge them or chase after them. Is that fair to say you're just watching them? Correct. Uh, you cannot stop thoughts. But a lot of people have the false idea that meditation is supposed to be about emptying your mind and not having thoughts, which is a hopeless endeavor, actually, because the mind generates thoughts continually. So the question is, can you change your relationship to those thoughts? That's what you're doing. We are not thinking about thought, but the thoughts can pop up. You know, when you meditate, you, you might feel some itchy, or you meditate, the breeze, wind, touched your body. It's out of your control. This is the beauty of life, all happening. And then same like thought pop-ups or some emotion pop-up, but you're not, where you're resting, where you're landing is the clear openness. And within that clear openness, thought can come. Anything can come, welcome, but not indulging, not joining. So you have to know your platform first. The platform is the clarity, aware of the clarity. So you're not chasing after the thought. If you're suddenly thinking, oh my God, I've got this deadline and I can't believe this guy gave me this unreasonable deadline. You're not chasing after it. You're just like, oh, okay, yep. Like, how do you relate to this stuff so that you're not going off into a death spiral? This always there's a fact or is your delusion. So if, if fact, then you have to follow. Don't meditate. Write your book, whatever, make, you know, finish whatever you need to do. But many is not like that. It's not a fact. It's just a distorted. So, but distorted, you think is a real, but real and true. But actually, you still have a lot of time. And then if you be relaxed, calm, I think whatever your deadline, you will do much better. I think this yeah. is true. We know this from psychology that if you add to the idea, I have to finish this book, for example, very common to catastrophize. What if I don't? If I don't, then I won't get the money. If I don't get the money, then I'll lose my house. If I lose my house, I'll be homeless. You know, you can go down a, a, a stream like that in a second. And what Rinpoche is saying is you don't have to do that. You You're can, aware of that. And then you be with that. And you talk to, no, 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 it's okay. Exactly. It's okay. You will, you will, you will, we will get some wisdom out of that. It, it feels real, but it's yeah. not true. That's really important. Yeah. It is real and true. Then you follow, of course. Forget about your session. Forget about mindfulness. Forget about handshake practice. It is real and true that the tiger is in your house. Is it real and true? Then you must do something. But there is no tiger. But you feel like there's tiger in your house. And then cognitively, you know, there's no tiger. But the, the imprint says, yes, there's a tiger. So this imprint is a fall. So you have to be kind to it. Because one time, that person has a, some you know, bad experience with tiger. But not in this house. And Daniel, there are also tremendous benefits here, not, not only in terms of calmness and the like, right? But in terms of this kind of training of the mind, there's a lot of science showing the benefits for focus, right? That there is a great benefit in terms of productivity, presumably. It's really a very strong finding now from many different studies that if you do this very simple practice, for example, of meditating on the breath, which is a kind of universal form that people call it mindfulness, they call it many different things, that the more you do it, 
more calm you get, and I talked about how you're less triggered or triggered less often, less intensely and recover more quickly. The other benefit is for attention, for focus. This is direct training in how to pay attention to what matters right now. And that is a way to enhance productivity, to enhance your effectiveness, no matter what you're doing. And that's another very important benefit from the beginning, I think, of meditation. Rinpoche, one trait that I have that I know many people in the West share is this sense of, um, it's related to that speediness and busyness, this sense of never being productive enough, never being good enough, never being satisfied, always feeling like we're failing. And I, I often feel like it, it's what drives me to be more successful and more productive than I would be otherwise, but it definitely doesn't make me happy. It, it makes me suffer from plenty of stress and anxiety, a lot of which is self-induced. And there was someone on, on your retreat who asked an extraordinary question where she, was, she said, look, I always feel like I'm failing and everyone else would say that I'm actually really successful but I don't feel like it. And she said, I can't even really enjoy my marriage or my kids or anything because I always am beating myself up. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about this subject, because I feel like part of what's happening for people like me or like her is that we feel like we succeed because we're anxious, because we're pushing ourselves very hard. And there's a fear, I think, that if we let go and we don't beat ourselves up the whole time, then we're going to fail. And how do you think through this issue in a healthy way? This is actually one of the beautiful monsters you're describing. It's the sense of, or sometimes it's called the imposter phenomenon. No matter how successful you are, you feel you didn't really deserve it. You don't really have the ability. You'll be found out one day. This is the, the fear that goes with it. This is the not true part. The feelings are real and they drive us. But this is a very self-defeating way to motivate yourself, because what you're doing is creating anxiety and stress for yourself over and above whatever the world is giving you. So I think the secret or the key here is to cut through that in the way that Rinpoche is describing, to say, okay, I have these feelings, I have these thoughts, but just to be with that and not to fight it, not to let it drive you. Because, William, I think the standard model of success in our society is actually quite neurotic. It's that if we don't keep up, if we don't drive ourselves, we'll somehow fail and fall behind. And so we get all of the self-judgment, self-criticism, this sense of, I got to do it, the tension that goes with that. Ricochet is saying, do it, but drop the tension. Do it, but the find, be with essence love. The whole thing here is the essence love is missing. The basic okayness, basic well-being, the inner home is missing. And this driving for success is a good. I'm not saying it's a bad, it's good. But we, you have to have a help of the basic well-being. And together that, you can be very successful. At the same time, the basic being is happy. And there's two kinds of happy. Happy without reason, happy with the reason. So if you put all your happiness with the reason, that all the reasonables, all the reasons are not really reasonable. They are thinking, no, sorry, they are changing, moving. They are impermanent, like everything else. They don't last. 
But it's important that he's pointing to something else, which is an ongoing sense of okayness. Because if you have that, and you operate from that, it's a very different mode. You can be highly effective, but without driving yourself crazy, without the tension, without the stress. But you still will do same job. And result even maybe better, but you are happy. You had a very interesting answer to that lady who asked you the question on the retreat, where you said to her something along the lines of, you're externally successful, but I want you to be internally successful too. And I really did a double take when you said that, because I feel like often that's where I'm failing, that it's like I can feel like, yeah, I'm externally successful, but I never actually can really relish it because I'm so busy beating myself up. And so how do you tap into that sense of what you call essence love, this, like in practical terms? Because it's a very vague idea, right? Essence love, which you define as this sort of sense of being just basic okayness for no reason. How, how do you, when you're dissatisfied with yourself and you're used to beating yourself up and thinking, wait, I'm falling behind, I should do more. How, how do you tap into that state of, of essence love, of basic okayness, independent of your circumstances? I think a little bit training through mindful awareness and uh, you have to drop all this worry for a while. It's not like forever removing from you. Just take your backpack and then true to yourself what is down there. And then you might meet, meet some beautiful monsters through handshake practice. It open up. When it open up, then naturally you feel okay. Huh, I'm okay. Why are you okay? No reason. I'm just feeling good. I feel okay. And we have to nurture that time to time. Reconnect with that. Nurture that. Then that purifies the hollow inside. In deep down, there's a hollow. Many people have the hollow. And then the, there's no more hollow. There's some rich, richness. And that is a love. Ready to love to other, some kind of, I call basic spark, shining. Okay. I'm okay with the busy, or, but I'm okay without that, also okay. So I call the dance between these two, two. One is social eye, one is like basic, healthy, mere eye. And the mere eye is just, this is such a complicated subject, I'm hesitant to go into it, but can you give us a sense of what you call them? What would you like to say about this, Daniel? Very interesting. So Rinpoche has a model of several different eyes. One is the needy, reified eye. It's the one that worries. It's the one that says, I have a deadline. If I don't get it, it's something terrible. It's that state of mind. And then there's what he calls the mare eye, which is very different. M-E-R-E. Yeah, M-E-R-E, mare eye, where you're sufficient unto yourself. Uh, you're, you're, you have this basic uh, okayness, as Rinpoche says. There's a social eye, that's your role. Uh, you do a podcast, you're a journalist, you write, and you use that effectively to help other people. But that's, that is not who you are. You put it on and you take it off. You know, when, when you're William at home, you're someone else than William at work. Exactly. Who you are, loving, open, normal, good sentient beings. But then, oh, 
my social eye comes in. Okay, use social eyes in the form of compassion way. And you mentioned something in the book, Daniel. I think you write about the Dalai Lama, who both of you are, are friends with. As a beautiful example of someone who ha- who's brilliant at using his social eye, like he operates brilliantly in public. Yes, and what's remarkable about him is um, he's so flexible with it. Depending on the context, depending on who he's with, depending on what people expect of him, he brings out a different social eye, and he does it very seamlessly. Uh, and uh, well, you were saying there was a study by Paul Ekman, I think, where he he looked at the Dalai Lama's face, and he would mirror the expression of the other person in this amazing way, and then the other person would go, and his face would go flat again, and then the next person would come, and his face would mirror their face. Paul Ekman was a world expert on the facial expression of emotion, and when he met the Dalai Lama, he said, "I'd never seen a face like that." First of all, he freely expresses the entire range of human emotion. And the second of all, he reflects whatever the person he's with at that moment is feeling. But then he drops it. And he said, Ekman said, most people don't, can't drop it. It stays with them. Uh, but he's so adaptable and agile. And this is the way he manifests his social self. So that he's ready for the next person and the next person. The next person. So, Rinpoche, when I try to sum up a lot of your teachings and see the link between your teachings of handshake practice, dropping, trying to avoid reifying our own ego, our reified eye, and making, you know, believing too much in who we are and how great we are or how solid we are or how permanent we are, a lot of your practices seem to be kind of a letting go and a lightening up and then saying, if I drop all of these worries and all of these fears and all of these childhood patterns, then what's underneath it is actually a much simpler and kinder and less fearful and more loving person. Is that fair to say that that's what we're discovering? Yes. I think you know my book more than I do. I just read it last last night, so it's, it's fresher to me than it is to you. Yes. But it's a very nice view of human nature that underneath all of the nonsense and all of the worry, you know, you talk about dropping the backpack of neuroses, you know, like dropping a lot of this nonsense and underneath discovering actually, for the most part, people are pretty good and pretty loving and pretty kind. And I find that myself that like when I behave worst, it's usually because I'm stressed out. So when you think of your father, for example, or you think of the Dalai Lama, or you think of your other great teachers, is this what they're representing in a sense, is, is this freedom where they've got rid of so much of this stuff that they're able to operate in a clear and simple way? Yes, clear, simple, and they're there with the loving and caring, but without baggage, without reified eye, without needy eye. I need that, I need that, without this frozen mind, frozen subtle body. It's very open but radiance, ready to connect with you through love and compassion. And underneath, very simple, very open, ready to respond, but not reacting. It's, I think our problem is we react everything, whether we need or no need to react. But when you found that simplicity, openness, with the essence of love, you are like, you know, like a little bit like, you know, 
big tree, but leaves, everything moves. But there's some groundedness. And very open, emotionally dot block, and loving emotion, caring emotion, all there. And the mind is not, you know, repeating after the same problem again and again. So it's very fresh, open, and they are like that. You also write about, in your book, Carefree Dignity, which I was rereading last night, you write about being with your father in the last few months of his life and how he behaved. And you said uh, he always held others to be more important than himself, even when he could hardly take one step on his own. And there's a lovely description of how someone would come to visit him and he would get his helpers to sort of hold him up by the window so he could wave goodbye to people even when he could barely walk. So it seems like compassion is a very big part of this, that when we're not so frightened and so anxious, a lot of compassion comes out. The the original compassion come out because with the compassion is not always blessing. Compassion is dealing with suffering. Loving kindness is connecting with the happiness of other and yours. But the compassion is really trying to eliminate a suffering. So when you engage compassionate way, there's a lot of stuff comes to you. Oh, like too many sadness. Oh, I cannot help the whole world. What shall I do? I just help one person. It's not good enough. I want to do it. There's so many beggars come. At the end, you're paralyzed. But you're not helping one person. You're not helping the larger world also because you think there's so much to you. Mm. So you become frozen. But these yogis, they know how to let you go the frozen. There's good um, science about this too, by the way. It turns out that compassion means tuning into the suffering and pain of someone else. And what very often happens, for example, in nursing, there's a lot of burnout, compassion, fatigue, because people get a kind of contagion from the, the person in pain. They take it on. They don't know what to do with it. So they handle it by tuning out. And in in the helping professions, this becomes a kind of cynicism. Uh, The alternative is what Rinpoche is talking about with his father and people like that, who are able to bring love. You know, when you have a a little kid who's having a meltdown, you love the kid. And so you're willing to stay with him in a loving way during the tantrum because you know they'll recover and you love them. And it's a very similar situation. If, and this is what the science shows, if you can bring compassion and love and not just try to handle your own pain, but really care about the other person and be with them in a loving way, changes everything. I think we believe there's some liberation, freedom, liberation within yourself. Then that naturally brings compassion. And then that compassion is, we call fearless compassion. I think the fear is, I'm going to be overwhelmed by the other person's suffering. Fearless compassion is, I don't care, I love them. I'm here for them. You used the phrase a minute ago, Daniel, when you you talked about tuning in rather than tuning out. And I I feel like with a lot of, there's a great line from the Wordsworth where he talks about the world is too much with us. And we're sort of overwhelmed the whole time. And I find myself sometimes in the evening just being like, God, I, let me just sit here and watch something dumb on Netflix or something. And it's tuning out. And yeah. likewise, when things are 
you know, when you feel that sense of hollowness or empêché that you talked about before, you know, it's like, okay, let me just eat the 23rd piece of toast or whatever, you know, to try to fill the hollowness. And it sounds like what you're advocating in general is instead of tuning out, kind of tuning in and being aware of your emotions, being with your emotions, not hiding, but becoming more aware of what's going on and what you're feeling. Is, is that fair to say? Yes, and then you regulate yourself how much you can do, how much you cannot do. And you know, maybe you have a capacity to do a lot, maybe, you know, smaller, but you're doing without guilt. And if you don't have a, you know, like a big capacity, then learn more, study more, practice more, then you can do a bigger. It's not become discouraged. It's become a courage that, oh, my capacity is just like a 10. So I think I will improve 20. You know, just, you know, then I, one day I can do 80%. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So when you have that sense of internal freedom, you're a little bit more available to help and you're not, you're not beating yourself up so much. You're not suffering so much from guilt and shame. Then you can help because yeah. you're beaten all of that. Yeah. You can paralyze. So the world, yeah. At the end, then you have a good, good thought, but you cannot do anything. And one day you are afraid of compassion. Please don't talk about compassion. You cannot take it because you have a compassion. And because of compassion, you don't know what to do. It makes you frozen. That is not the right way. You have to liberate those stuff. You seem very free. When I watched you in action over the last week in Garrison, New York, on this retreat, you seem very joyful, very peaceful, very calm. You're helping a lot of people, but you don't, there's no atmosphere of you trying to impress people. It's like you seem very free and humorous. Do you feel like you've managed to free yourself after all these years? Well, I know a little bit of dance. Can you say more? Dance between the, I don't know, this, the relative and the actual what it is. So the relative world is kind of the practical f- world that we live in. And then there's this ultimate world that you live in. It's hard because it gets into esoteric Buddhist terminology, right? Yeah, you mean, I mean you cannot really hold in and you are just a simple human being. So in a way, a lot of this is about becoming simpler. So that yeah. we're, we're being in the present moment rather than worrying, <laughs> worrying so much? No worry, sufficient, sufficient worry, not over worry. I'm good at sufficient worry. Everything is sufficient worry, but actually we are over worry. That's why you need meditation to look at, is this a really sufficient worry? Is this is a distorted base on sufficient worry? 10% is sufficient worry but I'm worried about 50%. So this 40% is giving me suffering. Is that 40% is deluding me. So why should I handshake with the 40% and keep the 10%? And 10% is quite healthy. I call healthy fear, healthy attachment, healthy jealousy, healthy anger. Not, not really anger, but healthy something. But when you're out of balance and you build in the distorted one and bringing into the reality and you're wearing that from that lens, you are perceiving everything through that, then is 
It gives suffering to you, it gives suffering to your family, it gives suffering to the world, because it's misunderstanding, miscalculated. And in practical terms, so that we can give our our listeners something to kind of uh, to tangible and pragmatic to guide them, they're going to use, hopefully, they, you know, if they read your book, they can play with these techniques like uh, handshake practice that we've discussed in detail. They can use dropping. They can use different types of breathing to calm them. In terms of the meditation, which seems very central, people, a lot of people, some of our listeners are already keen meditators. Some of them have dropped meditating. Some of them are a bit frightened of it. What's a practical, reasonable approach to meditation should they be thinking of 10 minutes a day, 5 minutes a day, 20? What would you guide people to do who are thinking, yeah, I, I want to be calmer and less neurotic and happier and more focused? Start with the 10 minutes and then here and there throughout of the day, aware of it and just sit down, sit a little bit or aware of your thought and feeling. Just one minute here, two minutes there. And sometimes if we have opportunity, just there's so many times that you don't do anything and just sit and reflect and be kind to yourself. Number one is kind to your thoughts and emotions. Hello, I'm here, I'm with you, I'm relaxing, it's okay. And keep doing that, the result, the beautiful thing will come. Dan, do you have any last piece of advice uh, on top of that? Be happy without reason. Happy without reason. That's good. I also, I also love, there's a beautiful line that, that I wrote down from our retreat, Rinpoche, where about this idea of kindness, where you said, be kind to yourself, be kind to your beautiful monsters, be kind to your children, be kind to your parents, be kind to everyone. I, I like that seemed to me. There's a sort of generosity of spirit, not only to other people, but to ourselves, which I think is very hard for us in the West. Kind in the form of non-judging. So you're saying non-judging is kindness? Kindness, yeah. Kindness comes with many forms. One of the measures is not judging. It's hard because I think that that brings up the fear for people like me, that if we don't judge ourselves and beat ourselves up, maybe we'll be too lazy and we won't get anything done. You know, I'll be so busy being calm and that I'll just sit there eating toast. That is going <laughs> too, too other way, too, too much other side. You want to balance. Balance. Any final piece of advice that you'd like to leave us with? This has been incredibly helpful. Thank you. Danny? Oh, final advice. Yeah. You know, the very best meditation is the one you'll do. That's my advice. And Rinpoche, any last piece of advice from you that you'd like to leave us with? Don't lose your inner humor. Okay. Connect with humor. I like yeah. that. Thank you so much. Well, Rinpoche, thank you so much for joining us here. And I, as you can see, your teachings have helped me a, a great deal in my own life. I'm a work in progress. I'm not there yet, but I'm, I'm happy that we have the opportunity here to share them with a, a broader audience. And Daniel, thank you so much for joining us as well. You're, you're the first repeat uh, guest on the podcast, so thank you. And Adam, thank you so much for your help translating from Tibetan. It's a pretty awesome skill you've got. I'm full of, full of admiration for it. So thank you all so much. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Take care. Lovely to see you all. All right, folks. Thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. As I'm sure you could tell, this was just a total pleasure for me. I have tremendous admiration for Daniel Goleman, whom I regard as a friend and mentor, 
And Sokning Rinpoche is one of the greatest teachers I've ever encountered. So to have them together in one conversation was just really special. I hope you enjoyed it too and that you'll benefit from the insights and practices they shared with us. If you'd like to learn more from them, I definitely encourage you to read their new book, which is titled Why We Meditate. I don't think the title really does full justice to the breadth and richness of the book because it's actually about much more than meditation. For one thing, there's a terrific chapter entitled Beautiful Monsters, which is all about Rinpoche's approach of meeting our emotional challenges with kind awareness and applying his method of handshake practice. I've found this approach pretty transformative in my own life, and I hope it helps you too. I'm also a huge fan of Rinpoche's online meditation course, which is called Fully Being. I've included links to this and various other resources in the show notes for this episode. Rinpoche lives in Nepal, so it's a fantastic gift to be able to learn from him online. He's a really remarkable teacher, and I personally hope to study with him for many years or decades to come. I'll be back again very soon with some more great guests, including a terrific investor named John Spears, who spent almost half a century generating superb long-term returns at an iconic investment firm called Tweedy Brown. In the meantime, feel free to follow me on Twitter at WilliamGreen72, and please do let me know how you're liking the podcast. I'm always really glad to hear from you. Until next time, stay well, and in the spirit of today's episode, be happy. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.